Bible with you, turn with me to Acts chapter 9, just for any visitors with us this morning, we're working our way through um, the book of Acts, and uh, we come to Acts chapter 9 after a, a couple of weeks break, I think it's about three weeks break for um, baptisms and then the family service last Sunday morning, but we're going to pick it up at Acts 9 which is such a pivotal chapter in the book of Acts and such a pivotal and turning point, actually, in the whole of Christianity. I'm going to just read the first nine verses this morning. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul <coughs> stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. To just leave. If you've got a Bible there, it helps if you keep it open and follow along with what, what we're looking at this morning. As I said before the reading, although it's been a few weeks since we last were in Acts, the last time we are, were there, and, and we noticed that the gospel is now spreading out. Following the stoning of Stephen, the, the church fled and they took the gospel with them. And it spread out from Jerusalem into Judea and into Samaria. And what we see is that the church is on the move. And praise God, the church is still on the move today in other parts of the world. And we see that people were being converted, people were being baptized, people were joining this new way of life. And as we come to chapter 9, we have what is another, and, and some would even say the most important event in all of church history. And yes, that's a remarkable statement to make, but we cannot underestimate the importance of the events that we read of in Acts chapter 9 regarding the conversion, the commissioning of Saul of Tarsus. And there is so much for us to consider in chapter 9 that, that we're going to have to take at least um, a couple of weeks looking at not just Saul's conversion, but also 
the major role that was played by both Ananias and Barnabas. I don't know, I was reading a little bit ahead for next week. I don't know that I would have liked Ananias' job to go and meet Saul first. However, this morning I want us to consider Saul's conversion. And to do so under two really simple headings. Firstly, we're going to look at his opposition. And then secondly, we're going to look at his conversion. And as we look at his conversion, we're going to ask, is it typical of what we should expect today? Or was it exceptional? So that's where we're going. Opposition. You will be aware if you've been following along and if you know a little bit of the Bible and of Acts, you'll be aware that this is not the first time that we have come across Saul. Indeed, Luke has already mentioned him three times. We first find him in chapter 7, verse 58, at the stoning of Stephen, where we're told that the witnesses laid their clothes at his feet. We saw also, or we see him again in chapter 8, verse 1, where he not only has Stephen's clothes at his feet, but he actually gives approval to Stephen's death. And then in verse 3, we read that he began to destroy the church. And going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. And now as we reach chapter 9, we find that he is still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Let me remind you that this is a thoroughly religious man who believes that what he is doing is God's work. So we can already see from these three previous examples that he is completely opposed to anything and everything to do with Christianity. He was religious, yes. He was devout, yes. He he was devoted, yes. His zeal knew no bounds, yes. But he was completely wrong. Let me just say that just because somebody may be sincere, and just because they may have great zeal and passion, that does not necessarily equate to them being right. You can be sincerely wrong. Think of the devotion and the commitment and the zeal of organizations, cults, like the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. Yet they are sincerely wrong. And Saul at this point is consumed by his opposition to those who are now followers of Jesus, to those who belong to the way. He is so consumed 
that once he's kind of done a bit of damage in Jerusalem, he goes to the high priest and he asks the high priest to give him letters so that he can go to the synagogues that are in Damascus, which actually Damascus was about 150 miles away from Jerusalem. You see his zeal, it would have taken him about five days to get there. This guy is obsessed. This guy is determined to wipe out Christianity before it took a further hold on the nation of Israel. And friends, it is important that we understand that we cannot underestimate his opposition, indeed his hatred. The language that Luke uses gives us a hint to what Saul was like in his opposition. Scholars point out that the word that's used in chapter 8, verse 3, to destroy is the same word that is used in Psalm 80, verse 13, where there we read of a wild, wild, of wild boars devastating a vineyard. If we read on a little bit further, we, we will see, or we'll see next time, that the Christians themselves acknowledged that he caused havoc in Jerusalem. Verse 21. He is a man who is on a mission to destroy Christianity. What hope is there for him? How will it all end for the believers that he's looking to bring back as prisoners? And just because we know the story, don't let that lose any impact of the opposition, the hatred, the drive, and the zeal that's so hard towards Christians. And so he sets off from Jerusalem, letters in his hand, to go 150 miles in order to persecute Christians. Just before we move on, and I mentioned it in my prayers there, but let's remember and continue to pray regularly for those who even still today face such opposition. I was reading just this week, many of you will know that I used the the Open Doors Prayer Guide. And I was just reading this week in it of how the second most dangerous place in the world to be a Christian today is Afghanistan. Where if in Afghanistan, if you are discovered to be a disciple of Jesus and you refuse to recant, to denounce, you risk extreme abuse, extreme violence, even death at the hands of neighbors, friends, and family. That's why we should pray for the persecuted church. And that's why, brothers and sisters, we should value the freedom that we have today. Opposition to the gospel and opposition to the followers of Jesus is still very, very much part and parcel of being a disciple of Jesus. 
If you look at verse 16, and we'll, again, we'll pick up on it next time, but if you look at verse 16, you will see that, that, that Jesus told Ananias that Saul would suffer much for my name, that is, for Christ's name. And brothers and sisters, let, let me say, it is, it is a normal part of Christianity. And we do no favors when we don't make that plain in our discipleship, particularly of new believers. Anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. I mentioned a few weeks back when speaking from Genesis and we're looking at the life of Joseph in that particular part just now, but I mentioned there that, that I think Christians generally need a good understanding and a good grasp of what I would call a theology of suffering. Opposition is part and parcel of our Christian life. But don't let it get you down. Because God is sovereign in all matters. He is seated on his throne. And he knows exactly what he's doing and when he will do it and why he will do it. And in Proverbs 16, verse 9, I used to read a chapter of Proverbs every day. I think I'll get back to doing that. But anyway, in Proverbs 16, verse 9, we read these words. In his heart, a man plans his course but the Lord determines his steps. Saul had a plan. <laughs> Saul had his heart set on opposing Christ and his people. Christ had his heart on saving Saul. Opposition. But then we read of his conversion. One of the, the many things that, that I really enjoy, um, and if I'm honest, miss and maybe aim to rectify, is I, I just love hearing people's testimonies of how they came to faith in Christ. And, and I hear it when people apply for, 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 for baptism and, and, and just to sit down and listen and share in people's journey towards faith and trust in Jesus, I find exciting and I find encouraging. And we have here in verses 3 to 6 something of Saul's conversion, albeit here it's actually quite brief. Uh, but his testimony Paul, Paul's, Saul's testimony is also found another twice in Acts in chapter 22, chapter 26, where Paul goes into far more detail than Luke does here. But, but let's notice what we see here. Because what we are told is that as Saul nears Damascus, 
He's right on the fringe of entering into that city and creating as much havoc as he did there, as he did in Jerusalem, he will in Damascus. Just as he nears it, we are told that two things happen. The first thing is this. Suddenly, that is, without any warning, without any kind of expectation, suddenly we are told that a light flashed from heaven. And it was so great that that Saul fell to the ground. And as he lay on the ground, he heard a voice from heaven calling out his name and of asking him a question. Seems a bit scary, does it not? How would you like to be just kind of traveling along and then all of a sudden great light shines that you fall to the ground and, and you hear a voice? What's going on? Well, we do well to remember that Saul was steeped in the Old Testament. And these two things... A bright light that would speak to, to those who knew the Old Testament of what was known as, as, as the Shekinah glory of God. And it was followed by a voice from heaven. And a voice that called out his name twice. And that was often how God's voice was heard in the Old Testament. And so you put these two th exceptional things together and you have no doubt that Saul knew that this is the Lord who was speaking, or sorry, who was appearing and who was speaking. He, he would have no doubts about it. None whatsoever. That is why Paul asks, who are you, Lord? He recognized this was the Lord. And the answer, you know, be careful when you ask questions because the answers can, you know, be, the answer must have blown him away. He, he says, he's lying there on the ground, blinded by the light, and, and, and he, asked, he asked, he hears his name and he says, who are you, Lord? And the voice comes back and says, I am Jesus. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Wow. This Jesus really is alive. Stephen and all those others that I have been opposing and I have been persecuting, they're right. And Jesus, the risen, ascended Jesus, tells Saul to get up, to go into the city, and he'll be told what to do. Let me pick up on a few things here. First is this. Notice, I, I found this so encouraging. Notice how closely Jesus identifies with his followers. To oppose and to persecute the followers of Jesus is to oppose and persecute Jesus. The church 
as his body. When we hurt, he hurts. Because he is our great high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And so when people get at you for your faith, they're really getting at Jesus. Who are you? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Saul probably thought, I'm not persecuting you, Lord. I'm persecuting these people who are... No. I am Jesus, whom you persecute. And Saul gets up. And, and we're told that he's unable to see. And so, so those who, who were with him, those who, those who were with him, who, by the way, also saw the light and, and heard the sound, they get up, they get him up, and they lead him by the hand, and they go into Damascus. Not quite the way that they expected. The one who thought he would ride in in great power and arrest all of these people has now been humbled. And he is having, he's having to be guided by others. And his first three days in Damascus were totally different from what he envisaged. Because for three days he did not eat and he did not drink. And let me just say that that, for an Old Testament Jew, that was another sign of earnestly seeking God. Saul had met the risen Lord Jesus on the Damascus Road. And as John Stott says, the light he saw was the glory of Christ and the voice he heard was the voice of Christ. And Jesus had interrupted his headlong career of persecution and had turned them round to face in the opposite direction. And friends, that is what an encounter with the living, risen, reigning Christ does. He changes us about completely and sends us on a different way. And as we'll see next time, Ananias visits him. My respect and admiration for Ananias has grown leaps and bounds. He lays hands on him. We're told that something like scales fell from his eyes. His sight was restored. And you know what's the first thing that Saul did? He got baptized. Even before he had any food or anything. It was a challenge. What a testament. And we have, as I said, we've got it recorded in another two parts of Acts, and I'm not quite sure when we'll get to chapter 22 and chapter 26 at this rate, but we'll get there. And, and, and in other parts of his letters, Paul makes clear of his repenting and trusting fully in the work of Christ crucified, risen, ascended. 
from this moment on, Saul is a new man. The, the old has gone and the new has come because he met with Jesus. But what about us? Very few of us, if any, will have had this particular Damascus Road experience. I mean, how many of you were blinded by a light? And how many of you have heard an audible voice calling out to you? So, was this exceptional or was this typical of a conversion? Well, as I so often like to do, but of both. I think there are bits that were exceptional, like the appearance of Christ, like the blinding light, like the audible voice, like the three days of blindness and then being cured. However, I want to stress here, brothers and sisters, that there is also features of this conversion which should be evident in any conversion. The first thing is this. Our conversion, our coming to faith, our being saved, our being born again, whatever language we want to use, the first thing to acknowledge is that it is entirely due to the grace and the mercy of God. It is God who takes the initiative. Saul did not set out on this trip to become a Christian. That was the furthest thing from his mind. The very opposite is the case. And had not God stopped him in his tracks, and had Christ not revealed himself to him, then he would never have got converted. Becoming a Christian, becoming a Christian was not on the radar of some. How many of us can look back to our own conversion and see the same thing? Becoming a Christian, you're having a laugh. The furthest thing from your mind. It is God who takes the initiative. And if you're a Christian, then never, ever forget that. That's part of Paul's whole argument, actually, in the first ten verses of Ephesians 2. It was God who took the initiative. It was he who thought on you, who loved you long before you ever had any thought. If you're a Christian this morning and think back to when you weren't, how much did you think of God? God takes the initiative. There is also, I'm going to be careful how I say this, but there is also a personal encounter with Christ. 
Perhaps not in the way that Saul had. But if you're a Christian, you need to have met, to have encountered Jesus. You need to have entered into a relationship with him. Friends, that is why reading your Bible is so important. Jesus tells us himself that these are the scriptures that testify about me. On the road to Emmaus, he spoke to, to, to the two of them from the scriptures. Why? Because they were the scriptures that pointed and spoke of him. Let me tell you, have you met Jesus as you read his word? Have you met Jesus as you gather around the table? Have you met Jesus? Not do you know him. We also see but there needs to be a yielding to the Lordship of Jesus. Notice what Saul says. Who, who are you, Lord? Saul asks in his testimony in chapter 22, he says, what shall I do, Lord? And an understanding of who Jesus is and a desire to serve is evidence of conversion. You see, becoming a Christian calls for total surrender and commitment to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in every area of our life. As somebody has once said, if he is not Lord of all, then he is not Lord at all. One writer puts it like this. Conversion is a root, not a decision, not a commitment, but a surrender to the supreme authority of Jesus. He can't be Savior without being Lord. Is he Lord of your life? Have you understood that? And if so, in what way are you serving him? Jesus. All for Jesus. Can we not only sing that, but live it out? Or are there parts of our life that we prefer not to let Jesus rule over? You see, for the believer, for the believer, there should be no such thing as a sacred, secular divide. Every believer should echoes, echo sorry, Saul's call. What would you... Have me do, Lord. There's a work, you used to sing an old hymn. There's a work for Jesus, none but you can do. Not particularly sure about the theology of it, but I know what it means. Ephesians 2 tells us he's prepared works in advance. What are you doing for the Lord? 
How much time are you spending in the Lord's work in relation to anything else? We'll also see in the coming week, probably next week, the importance that baptism and belonging to a local fellowship of God's people plays in our conversion. It's one of the first things that Saul did. He got baptized, and then Barnabas took him along to the local gathering of God's people. Something else that struck me as I got towards the end of my preparation, and these things always happen as I get towards the end, was this. We never know, we never know what God is doing, as it were, behind the scenes. I wonder what impression was being formed in the mind of Saul at the stoning of Stephen. Was God beginning to work in his heart? Because you see, as you listen to people's testimonies today, many people talk of their journey to faith. And yes, it is a journey for many, and yes, there has to be that kind of decisive step when you repent and when you trust Christ. But how many of us can look back and with the gift of hindsight, spiritual hindsight, how many of us can see that God was at work in ways that we could never have imagined? And one final thought, and I trust that this acts as a real encouragement to every one of you, particularly those involved in either working, working the Lord or, 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 or just praying for, for someone. If Saul can be saved, and later on he claims to be the chief of all sinners, although when we look into all our own hearts, we probably say we could give him a run for his money. But if Saul can be saved, the one who claimed to be the chief of all sinners, the one who set out to to crush Christianity, then brother, sister, is there not hope for everyone? And that includes that person that you've been praying for, that family member, that friend, that work colleague, colleague, sorry, even, even the most awkward and unlikely of characters, God can save. If he'd done it with Saul, he can do it for them. If he saved me, if he saved you, he can save others. Saul's opposition 
Don't be surprised when people oppose you. Saul's conversion is all of God. It involves encountering Christ. It involves surrendering to the Lordship of Christ. It involves being baptized and belonging to a fellowship of God's people. And never underestimate what God is doing in the lives of even the most unlikely of people. Let us pray.